Participate, engage, speak out, use your voice to be an effective advocate. The Voices in Advocacy podcast examines the diverse landscape of advocacy, exploring the ins and outs of building influence, driving change, and creating champion advocates. It's now time for the Voices in Advocacy podcast with your host, Roger Rickard. Hello and welcome to the Voices in Advocacy podcast. I'm Roger Rickard, president and founder of Voices in Advocacy, where we work with organizations to inspire, educate, engage, and activate supporters by turning them into effective, influential advocates. And this is the podcast for the art of advocacy. This podcast is for the people that work and engage in advocacy efforts for their organizations, be they corporations, associations, trade organizations, and nonprofit cause groups. And if you are one of those people that work to build grassroots advocacy and grow your community of advocates, then you are in the right place. Now, let's get started. In today's episode, we meet Joshua Haberski. Joshua is the head of government affairs at the Premium Cigar Association, running both state and federal trade group representing 3,000 plus retailers and 250 plus manufacturers of premium cigars, pipe tobacco, and accessories. He is the adjunct professor of, uh, at the Graduate School of Political Management at George Washington University. He is also contributing editor for campaigns and elections publication on issues related to lobbying, government affairs, advocacy, and grassroots. Josh has extensive advocacy experience in the association world. Now, let's talk education. Josh has a BA in political science, a master's in American government from Georgetown University, as well as certificates from the London School of Economics and Harvard's Kennedy School of Government. Now that is impressive. Josh, thank you and welcome to today's show. Thank you, Roger. Really excited to join you for the broadcast today. I really appreciate the offer to, to be on the program and, and really am uh, thankful for all the work that you do in the community, uh, the advocacy community to build breast practices and thought leadership. Uh, this podcast is great and uh, look forward to our, our conversation. Oh, well, so am I, because as a way of full disclosure, I absolutely enjoy a premium cigar along with a close-knit group of fellow cigar smokers, and, and I really wanted to interview, one, because of your extensive background, the writing you've done, all the great work that you've done over the years in this space, but more importantly, to also talk about your organization's advocacy efforts, because most people don't understand what a lot of associations do and trade organizations do to help protect their members and uh, protect and defend them along the way. So uh, it, with your background of everything, it's, it's quite impressive. So let's begin with uh, something relatively uh, simple I know for you. What's the first thing that comes to mind when you think of advocacy? I think about, get, you know, Really, and I, I wrote about this a couple of years ago, I think it's part cheerleader, part mentor, part teacher. So you got to teach people the tools, the technology, the techniques, 
and how to get to have their voice heard, how to effectively communicate with policymakers. But you got to get them excited about it. And I think that that is one of the toughest challenges that we face as advocacy professionals is that these are complex issues. They're moving along the contours of government. You don't know whether it's a state issue, a, a federal issue, a local issue. Um, you know, just yesterday with the Votorama stuff, you know, we're up at five o'clock in the morning talking about complex policy issues. How do you get your average citizen that is busy taking care of their family, putting food on the table, interested enough to write to Congress, call Congress, or you know, meet in person, um, you know, pre-COVID and post-COVID with elected officials. So I try to reduce the barrier of entry to make it easily accessible for people to engage with policymakers, do so in their personal story, and provide all of the foundational uh, framework around them to make it as easy as possible. So you brought up just music to my ears with everything that I do. Uh, about making sure that we engage them and that they have an understanding. And you brought up something really important about their personal story. Now, your role as the head of government affairs uh, really has a technicality behind it. Let's get into the weeds of all the, the technical things that we know could cause us problems down the road. Uh, by either supporting or, or going against a particular piece of legislation. But for those advocates, for those citizens, for those members of your organization, they don't know that. So how do you, how do you engage them to make them comfortable enough to be able to tell their story of the impact that you're trying to uh, uh, deal with on that issue? I think making it easily digestible is the first and foremost goal of, of the policy making process as it relates to the grassroots. You know, we exist as professional staff and consultants to take the complexity and boil it down to what advocates need to know to have an impact, to get them to feel an emotional feeling, whether it pulls at their pocketbook or pulls at their heartstrings, why should they take the time to get involved with something? And I think as professional staff, you know, I, I have I previously worked for the Motorcyclist Association, Diabetes Association, and Independent com Community Bankers. Vastly different issues. Yeah but all in grassroots because I was able to communicate a policy issue to a, a sector of people and, and, a, and a certain group and explain it. And um, I mentioned before we, we got on the uh, podcast that my interest in government affairs was always to be a political science professor. And um, I see that as part of the role. I'm a political science professor or a teacher or instructor for a group of people and also the keeper of the issues. And you mentioned there's friction, you know, in, in trade associations, not everyone's going to agree. So we got to coalesce people around a certain set of ideas. And I kind of uh, play that referee role between all of the stakeholders and know our policy issues front to back. So, you know, I'll have to, in my role now, articulate that directly with policymakers as our chief lobbyist, but also work with our key stakeholders from CEOs to the, the store clerks at a retail lounge, getting everybody involved and interested. 
Well, and, and what you're talking about there then with the CEO versus down to the store clerk is dealing with the difference between the grass tops naturally and dealing with the grass roots. And, and what concerns a CEO may be very different between what concerns your grassroots people. So how do you do that uh, while you're trying to deal with the priorities? And let's, let's in fact, let's, let's divert here for a second. Give me a top line, two or three priorities that you're gonna have to deal with in the 177th Congress. Yeah, absolutely. I think, um, you know, consistently our top priority is distinguishing premium cigars from other tobacco products. Um, unfortunately, we get lumped up into all of the other tobacco products, vaping products, e-cigarettes, uh, combustible cigarettes, and it's premium cigars are vastly different from all different types of tobacco products. Whether you look at the user profile, the usage patterns, um, you know, youth access is always a concern for any tobacco related issue. And, you know, we take great pride in our retail lounges uh, of being the forefront at protecting youth from enjoying, uh, for, from, you know, taking and, and smoking premium cigars. The average premium cigar enthusiast has their first cigar at the age of 30. So, and that's evidence from the FDA and the NIH in their path study, not industry data. So we don't have a youth access issue, nor do we have an addiction issue. Your average premium cigar smoker has less than two a month. So, you know, combating the narrative of all tobacco is bad and educating policymakers on the differences, the health impacts, which you know, that the data is on our side, as well as the small business impact. I'm out here trying to protect 30,000 jobs, 3,000 small businesses on the retail side of things in the midst of the pandemic. Our, our retail stores are, are rebounding, um, but there are concerns that are, are on the forefront. You have some arbitrary shutdowns where just because it's tobacco, they're not allowed to open, even though other businesses, bowling alleys, hair salons, they're allowed to open. So I got to step in at the local and state level as it relates to some of that. So, it, you know, it, there's a multitude of different things. Uh, we had legislation in the past Congress in the Pallone bill in the House Energy and Commerce Committee, uh, which would have been extremely pro problematic for our industry. Um, so, you know, we're hopeful. We have a, a set of challenges, but we have a lot of opportunities uh, with the new administration, I think international development, international security, and um, you know stability in the cigar producing regions of the Dominican Republic, Nicaragua, and Honduras. There's a lot of potential there. Well, that that sounds uh, most. You just said a mouthful there with the diversity of the type of issues that confront businesses that most people don't immediately think of and by digging deeper into that. So I would almost tend to think that you probably have more issues directed and you, you hit upon this a little bit at the local and the state level, uh, much more than you do in a, uh, other than the big umbrella issues uh, at, the, at the federal level. Is that, am I right on that or am I off base? 
This year, especially, um, you know, seventy-five percent of my time has been with the states. um, You know, recently, and then about twenty-five percent federal. Last year, it was more fifty-fifty because of the breakdown of Congress. Um, This year, being so split and and so close in terms of the partisan breakdown, affords us the ability to really negotiate and prevent bad legislation. It's a little bit easier to prevent bad legislation than it was last Congress. Um, Unfortunately, it's it's harder to advance um, legislation that would help our industry. We've done a lot of work with the agencies and the administration Um, You know, for the past four years and even before that, uh, a lot of our advocacy and lobbying is directed at the White House, uh, the FDA, Health Department of Health and Human Services, and that will continue. Um, And then we have a very active legal and litigation strategy where we sued the Food and Drug Administration twice last year and were successful in both of those lawsuits. So um, I think our advocacy portfolio you know, we definitely have a strong grassroots as it comes to our small businesses. And when they get their consumers engaged alongside a, a partner organization, Cigar Rights of America, we're a force to be reckoned with in the grassroots. And then, of course, the grass tops with our, our CEOs and some of the high profile um, cigar makers, they are highly engaged as well. Uh, but that litigation and that legal advocacy, that's also a critical component that you know, in any of the organizations that I worked for in the past, I was not really familiar with that. So it's been a, a, a new, I'm not a lawyer by trade, uh, but having to explain some of the policy impl- implications of what's going on in Capitol Hill and with the agencies and working with the lawyers, um, that is a new uh, new task that I have at hand. You know, and I, and I think oftentimes there's a lot of organizations that believe or spend so much time focusing on the legislative branch of our government and they forget the administrative executive branch and particularly dealing with the regulators who, as we all know, once once a piece of legislation is written, that's not the end of it. You know, it now goes through this regulatory process of what are all the rules that go around dealing with what was written from a, from a legislative standpoint. And you mentioned that this year about 75% of your time is going to be spent dealing with, with states. Are there certain states that are creating more hurdles than other states for you? Oh, absolutely. New York and California are always on the list, you know, two of the largest states. Um, I think that's where the po- like policy testing grounds, if it's successful in California and New York, it'll, it will spread like wildfire, yeah. uh, you know, to other states. Um, you know, I think we also have our states that are more influential for our industry that we need to make sure that we're cognizant of. Pennsylvania and Florida have the most retail tobacconists, uh, as well as in Florida, most of the manufacturers are based in in the state of Florida. So when things pop up there, um, you know, they might not have as much of likelihood of passing, but we cannot neglect and not engage on an issue. And for example, in in Florida this session, they tried uh, in the Senate to ban 
uh, smoking in public parks and public beaches. And we came in and we had one of our board of directors testify in the hearing in the committee um, against the bill. And we're going to fight this one tooth and nail because in Florida in particular, there is, in, in your experience, you can attest to this, that there is cigar tourism. People go Absolutely. to places like Florida or, or cigar lounges just to experience the allure of it. And I can speak from personal uh, experience. I love going to Tampa and Miami and enjoying looking at the ocean and uh you know just enjoying yeah it. I, I was going to talk about a trip that i took to tampa for that very very reason and, yeah. toward, and toward that area because of uh, my love of it and wanting to understand more about what the process is and and the, and the length of time and most people i don't i don't think would equate this but as we when you look at spirits and when you look at the, the local spirits and you look at somebody uh, a state like uh, kentucky and how well they do with like bourbon tourism, how yeah. important that is then, you know, and there's a lot of the same principles. It takes a lot of time to make a good bourbon. It takes a lot of time to make premium cigars. And, and there are the same types of uh, steps and processes that you do to age this and to put it together, to be able to blend the tastes uh, that, that people have. Uh, we, could, we, could, we could get off on that tangent for quite a while, I'm sure. Uh, I mean, uh, you know, just a, an anecdote there that, you know, 200 hands touch a premium cigar before yeah. in the market. A lot of times it takes three to six years and no one cigar, even within the box, will be the same. And uh, in January, I had the opportunity to go for a week and tour different parts of Nicaragua and go to the fields, the fermenting barns and the factories and see that process come to life. It's labor intensive. Uh but it is an artisanal craft. And, yeah. you know, I think your comparison to like a fine wine or a craft whiskey uh, is, is a strong one. And, you know, we want to push back against the stigma that on Friday night, whether you're a, um, you know, you're a working professional and you want to hang out with your friends and enjoy a cigar or it's game day and you're celebrating your Nittany Lions winning, you should be able to enjoy that. It's not, um, you know, something that's, you know, this is bad for you. And I, I think we're, we're pushing back against that stigma that you can, you know, occasionally recreationally uh, enjoy a premium cigar. I think that, I think that's a really good point and tying together, you know, I mean, where would, where would California be and, and particularly Napa Valley uh, and Sonoma be without the wine tourism that, that they have gotten from, uh, from what they've done there. So we've talked about relationships and we've talked about using grassroots and we've talked about, uh, about that. How important is relationship development between your grassroots and elected officials? I think it's uh, critically important. And I think even more so during COVID, um, you know, we did an ebook with the Advocacy Association on um, COVID strategies and advocacy. Right. And um, this is an area that I think was a particular concern for folks in government affairs. Like if as a direct lobbyist, not being able to access the capital and, and meet face to face, how are we going to advance our issues, get our message uh, to the forefront? And I think one of the 
uh, and I talked about the barriers of entry, it's been interesting to see that a lot of the barriers of entry have been reduced due to COVID. Right. Um, and, you know, Senate offices in particular, it's tough to get a meeting with a U.S. senator. Virtually, they have more time. Their staff is more accessible. Um, I had grassroots, you know, not necessarily CEOs of, of, of cigar companies, but, um, you know, employees of, of retail stores and lounges connecting with uh, U.S. senators over the past year, you know, doing these small format five or six Zoom conferences. Um, and, and I think that that is important um, to develop those relationships, but also uh, provide that personal flavor. So, you know, we have our talking points, we have our data, we have our research, but nothing beats that personal interaction. And, you know, I, and I think you're absolutely right. You know, under every cloud is a silver lining somewhere and you have to sometimes go dig for the needle in the haystack to find it. But, you know, I, I had a client that for the last eight years, we've done Hill Day, you know, we've done our legislative action day on the Hill and we've always averaged somewhere between 100, 130 of people that would be willing to fly in, go to Capitol Hill, have the meetings, do that. And this past June, of course, we had to do it virtually because of the pandemic and not having access and people not wanting to travel and, and all the other factors that play into that. We had over 1,600 people participate this year. And that gave them the opportunity to dip their toes in the water and to get a feel for this and have a better understanding of, A, why this is important. And the fact that they learn, which we all know, is that between staff and between members of Congress, they need and they want the impact from the constituents in their communities. That's how they gauge what's happening because yeah. it can't be everywhere at all times. And I think that is a positive development where you have more people that got an understanding of how government works, you know, civics 101 and got to actively participate in it. You don't have that cost barrier of entry. You don't really have that in intimidation factor. You can have a meeting with a U.S. senator in your pajamas uh, via Zoom. And, and, and it's um, I, I think that that's an overall positive thing that will translate and carry down forward in years to come where some of these you know, digital activists that participated in a virtual fly-in will eventually uh, take the next step in, in the future and, and continue that activism. We'll, you know, we'll lose some folks, but I think it's our job now as advocacy professionals to identify those folks that were engaged in COVID being a unique year, uh, year plus, and build off of that, train them, provide additional resources and not just stop. We, we got to be careful not to just utilize it as a one-off. They did this and great plan. We're, we're, we're going to forget about you. Yeah, no, I, I, I absolutely agree. And then on that vein, then what do you think is the first steps from a training standpoint that you would provide people that never really felt that government influenced them that much to be able to take a stand. And I think that between the pandemic and what politically has happened in the last three, four years and what's happened in the last two months uh, politically, I think that there are a lot more people that have an interest that have paid more attention. So what do you do to train those people that may have an interest, but also the fear of, I don't know what to do? 
I think, you know, building their confidence through some of the um, easier actions is always favorable. It's, it's pretty easy to share something on social media, do a form letter, um, things like that, sign a petition, get them engaged along those contours and really get a, a deeper dive and a sense for the issue set. Um, it's important that they have a clear understanding of the position of the organization. Um, I think that the biggest challenge with this new set of uh, advocates is keeping them focused right. because of the uniqueness of the political climate, everything that's going on with the pandemic, plus, um, you know, all of the issues that we saw in, in, in the election, uh, plus, um, you know, just a, a hostile partisan environment. So, you know, the last thing that any of us as advocacy professionals want is our advocates that are supposed to go in there talking about small businesses and premium cigars to talk about fringe issues or, or things that uh, are not representative of the association. And I think it's weird because you've had some of these corporations and even trade groups go out on a limb on other issues that don't affect their core membership. And I get it that they, they want to be seen as active and have a voice in what's going on in the overall political climate. But to me, they're, they're running a big risk because some of those advocates are going to take that and, and go a step further. So you're not going to see the premium cigar association under, under my tenure um, in, in government affairs, talking about issues that don't affect premium cigars. And, and you, and you bring up a real good point. I mean, uh, part of the training has to be is stay in your lane, do what you need to do, talk about why we're here. You don't want to be political. You don't want to be partisan. You want to talk about what the issue is, how it affects you personally. Uh, and you want to stay away from that. You don't want to be the, the squirrel. Oh, look, acorn over here and, and chase something that has nothing to do with that. Uh, and, and we often know that particularly if you're de dealing with a, a very partisan member, uh, elected official, they may want to take you down that rabbit hole uh, because they don't want to really talk about your issue. And we've yeah. got to make sure that they understand that and, and bring them back into their lane and say, but I'm here for this purpose today. And let's talk about the specifics of this and why it why I came, why I decided to do this because of how it affects me. So, no, I, I agree. So this year, I mean, we've seen the trend as everybody has in every industry of how technology is changing things and how technology is moving us either along or, or, or so on and so forth. And we've seen some of the tools have some great impact. And you mentioned things like Zoom uh, that we're using today here to... Uh, to conduct the interview as being uh, an innovation that has really helped us at a time when we couldn't be face-to-face -face with that. Uh, but are most of the technologies overtaking our personal grassroots engagement or are they enhancing it in your viewpoint? I think that they're enhancing it. Um, you know, I, I, I think that they provide a lot of the communications vehicles for us to build those inner, you know, personal interactions, um, you know, premium cigars and, and being a, 
it's, it's a sense of community. You go to any cigar shop, it's a safe space where you can talk about issues that you wouldn't otherwise talk about, you know, politics, religion, the like. Uh, pe- the, the, they're, a, they're centers or bedrocks of political discourse um, in, in inherently. So um, I, I think I'm in a little bit of a unique situation in that industry area. But, um, you know, we, we want to see those conversations continue and, and really um, build the, the communications tools that we have through the advocacy platforms, but ensure that there, there is that crossover and, you know, online and offline that, that shift back and forth. And, um, you know, being that we're in such a personal industry in both advocacy and in the premium cigar world, we can't wait to get back to uh, live events. We've done some small scale ones, even during this past year, um, you know, following all of the CDC guidelines with it. But, um, you know, we used to do a public engagement series here at our office, which is a cigar lounge right off of Capitol Hill, where we would have 100 plus staffers every month learning about some aspect of premium cigars. And like we moved those virtually. And it was really cool because, you know, I had the opportunity to interview folks like Rocky Patel and George Padrone and asking them about, you know, their stories. And we did that and sent it over to staffers and they got to see the the interviews there but nothing can beat actually giving a sensory experience getting to touch the tobacco plant to roll it together smoking it enjoying a uh, chocolate or a coffee or um, you know a scotch that pairs well with a cigar that's the sensory experience that i want to um, build back and, and provide that, um, you know, in-person engagement. You know, a lot of organizations use uh, site visits. And essentially what you're talking about is we're going to have you come do a site visit at one of our lounges and uh, you're going to experience things. You're going to touch it. You're going to learn it. You're going to see the behind the scenes that nobody normally see so that you can better understand the entire process and i I think the value of using those face-to-face engagements is really important and by the way josh that you know i want to know when you're having those because when i'm in dc i want to be a part of that uh you know for for maybe some selfish reasons but uh no and i think that's that's a really great point you can use technology You can use the tools to help engage people, but when you get them the opportunity to touch, smell, feel the senses to go through things, I think that that has a a big impact. Do you think some of the technology though is, is, uh, is just creating a lot of noise that, that almost at this point is getting ignored? I do. I think that some of it is um, a bit repetitive that, um, you know, staffers that are getting blasted with, you know, hundreds of emails about different issues, like you, you got to, we as advocacy professionals need to do a better job at filtering um, and, and, and doing calculated communications. I'm not saying don't do form letters. I'm not saying don't contact staff about informational things. I'm just saying that, don't be one of those organizations that blasts out a, a daily update to staff segments 
that they didn't sign up for that they don't want to receive or they ignore because it does a disservice to the rest of us in the community that are trying to do it and focus and, you know, keep it focused. So, you know, segmentation, we all need to do that. Um, you know, I think the tools have, are improving and they're um, especially certain providers. I mean, we've, we've seen a proliferation in our grassroots communications uh, with the tool that we use. And I, I like some of the innovative approaches. We use one-click politics for our, our grassroots and they have a video feature. And I think that that's interactive, having the ability for staff to, you know, actually engage and in, instead of getting a, a form message, there's a 30 second clip of a, a retailer in a cigar shop. Like that, to me, that's a, a welcome innovation that Absolutely. doesn't clutter um, and, and cause, cause issues. Um, you know, we also work with um, fiscal note in the, in the, the, on the um, tracking side, they've streamlined a ton of things for us there. So uh, I've been happy with yeah. both technologies that, that we use. And I know there's others out there, you know, I would say that it's a, a bit of a call to arms for all these technology providers in the advocacy space that, you know, you've had essentially forced market increase. I, I think that for the organizations that had only a halls and walls direct lobbyist, you have to have grassroots now. Like uh, uh, during the, the pandemic, it has created that forced market. So the folks that work and operate in that, in the consulting space and in the technology space, they have to innovate, they have to adapt, they have to welcome this new um, user base of, of people that have entered the market that don't have a, a great understanding and haven't been doing it for years. Do you think uh, the events of January 6th are long-term going to affect accessibility uh, of face-to-face uh, -face engagement on Capitol Hill with members and staff? Yeah, I, I do. I think, unfortunately, and, you know, I walk by the Capitol every day on my uh, way to work. I mean, it, uh, until March, it's it, it, it looks like a prison barracks. And mm. um, I think, uh, unfortunately, you know, that's another factor, another audible that we have to call as advocacy professionals. Right. How do we deal with that? Um, so, you know, hopefully there are ways that we can keep everyone safe and secure, but still have those meetings with high level public officials. I, I, I think, you know, much like media um, having credentials for, uh, you know, registered lobbyists, having credentials for media to be able to access that the, the capital. I mean, I think the lobbyist term and, you know, there's organizations out there that do a good job trying to fight back against this. It gets a negative connotation. Oh, absolutely. But, but a, a lot of us, we're there to provide information and resources to staff members. They want to meet with us. We have access to better information, better data, and better research, research in many cases than they can. So I'm hoping that the security protocols can adapt to reflect, you know, there is a need to ensure that the U.S. Capitol is safe and secure, but for those of us that routinely work in it and have done so um, with the, the utmost respect for 
the folks that are on there and the respect for the institution, we got to be able to access that at some point. And if it's doing a, an ID or, you know, credential for registered lobbyists, I'm fully in favor of that. I think that's, I think that's a great uh, solution to begin the process of, of re-engaging with that. You know, you brought up something uh, in, in a lot of the training programs or even keynotes that I do, uh, I will talk about the five things that a good lobbyist does, uh, because there is this negative connotation of a lobbyist. And most people, the average Joe doesn't necessarily realize that, that first and foremost, a good lobbyist has to be truthful <laughs> because of a member and staff get burned by somebody who's not telling them the truth, they will never have access again. And it doesn't matter whether they change jobs from wherever they go, they're going to be they're going to be locked out because they don't want to ever be thrown under the bus uh, by information that a lobbyist gives. But as I go through these five things that, that a good lobbyist does at the end, then I ask them, so what's the difference between a lobbyist and you? And really, when it comes down to it, the only difference a citizen has in their engagement ability is the difference between someone's paid to do this, right? And the citizen is not. And I mean, yeah, it gets a little bit co more complex than that, of course. Yeah, but from the citizen's viewpoint, they have those same powers. That's why we want to engage them in grassroots, isn't it? Absolutely. I, I think, unfortunately, Hollywood has not been too friendly to us <laughs> lobbyists in, in the depiction in, in, in TVs and movies about what lobbyists actually do. And like, you know, the steak dinners are part of it, uh, you know, the events, the fundraising circuit, that's a small piece of the puzzle. I mean, you know, in terms of time allocation, you know, you have to do that. That's part of the political process. Um, you know, the I know that there there are a lot of folks that are against political action committees and um, you know trade trade group packs and and things like that. But at the end of the day, it's average citizens contributing in a transparent way that is accessible to anybody in the public. You can see where the money's coming from. And you um, you're you're donating on behalf of, of your industry to people that believe in what you stand for. And right. I think that that's an inherent part of the political process and one that needs to be defended. I, you know, you and I could talk hours and hours about PACs and lobbying and how, you know, there's a ton of criticism. Some of them are valid, but in the vast majority, like any other profession, you have a lot of good people that are trying to improve society and find policy solutions to real world problems that we have. That's right, that's uh, absolutely right. So as we come close to wrapping this up, and by the way, you said we could talk for hours. Uh, I'm gonna have to bring you back on at another time and dive a little bit deeper on some things as down the road here, because this has been quite enlightening. And I think that our, uh, our guests are gonna find this enlightening. Uh, so as we're wrapping this up, uh, uh, maybe a, one or two final quick questions. And is there any advocacy uh, questions that your leadership is really not discussing right now? I think everything is on the table. Um, you know, we're, we're, we're trying to figure out what the year is going to look like 
from a holistic standpoint, federal, state, where are we going to have to allocate our resources? Um, much like a lot of the associations out there, we're, we're dependent on a trade show as our revenue source. And last year, that trade show didn't take place. Um, and unfortunately, we had to make very, very tough cuts uh, across the board, staffing, consulting, tools, technology. Um, so, you know, this is a rebound year. We had to work harder with less last year. Right. And I think that's going to have to continue this year. Um, so, you know, we're looking at, I don't want to take on an issue that we don't have a reasonable chance at success. And success doesn't necessarily have to be, mean getting a bill passed in Congress. Some of it is messaging. Some of it is right. educating. Uh, but we have to have a tangible goal. It can't be, you know, something pops up and I get an alert that says this bill is taking place. Well, if it has no chance of, of, of passing, you know, why expend resources specifically on time um, of, of our team? We're, we're extremely small, um, a small association that is forced to fight above our weight class. And um, I, I think, you know, this year really defining what our priorities are. We have our, our board of directors meeting next week. Uh, looking forward, I put together a 10 page plan on our coordinated government affairs strategy um, and, and new ways where we can do and continue to do less with or, or more with less. Boy, you're not the only one that's in that boat right now. Uh, I hear it all the time. Uh, any final thoughts, Josh? Yeah, I think, you know, uh, one thing I would say to all the listeners, uh, and, and we touched upon this in our conversation, that advocacy, uh, whether you're a volunteer or whether you're a paid, um, you know, consultant, paid in-house staff member, um, it's a important part of the political process. It's one that um, has been around for a number of years. We serve uh, an important purpose. Uh, at all levels of government and, and, and within the federal federalist uh, process. And I think that, um, you know, it's an honorable thing to do. You got to make sure that you, as you mentioned, do it with truthful, truthfulness and honesty. Uh, but I, I would say for, for anybody that listens to this, hopefully from our conversation and the insights that Roger provides and that I, I talked about a little bit and the other guests on this program, that you'll be energized to take action and get involved in causes and organizations that you believe in. That are near and dear to your heart, huh? Yeah, absolutely. So Josh, how can people reach you? So uh, very accessible on LinkedIn. Um, I, I respond to pretty much every message that I get. My email address is joshua at premiumcigars.org. Uh, and, um, you know, I'm located here in, in Washington, D.C., right near Union Station, uh, where we have our, our cigar lounge. And uh, feel free to shoot me a note and contact me if, I, if you would, uh, you know, want to stop by and have a cigar and coffee. I'm going to take you up on that, and you know that for a fact. Well, you know, Josh, this, this was this was great. Well, that wraps up today's guest conversation and our great conversation with Joshua Habersky, head of government affairs at the Premium Cigar Association. Thanks so much for being on the show. 
Now it's, it's time for the advocacy engagement tip. Now today's tip is one of my five reasons your supporters do not participate in your grassroots advocacy efforts. And this one is lack of knowledge. Josh and I talked about this today. People lack the skills, the skilled knowledge to be effective advocates. They just don't know what to do when placed in an advocacy situation. They want and need specific training on both, how to advocate, what to say. And just like any successful athlete knows, the more you train, practice, the better you perform when the lights are on. So does your organization provide training and practice time for your supporters? Just a couple of quick notes here at the end of this episode. If you're interested in being a guest on my show, go to voicesandadvocacy.com and click on uh, the contact us to let us know you're interested and why we should have you on the show uh, because you got to match uh, Josh's great energy today that, that he brought to the table. I'd love to have you contribute your thoughts because I'm sure you are wiser than I am. In upcoming episodes, you will be treated to great interviews from leaders in the world of politics, associations, and nonprofit causes. I'm sure you will enjoy these interviews. So if you like today's podcast, head over to where you find your podcasts and subscribe to the Voices in Advocacy podcast today. The final big, big thank you to Josh for being on the show today. Greatly appreciate you. We hope you enjoyed today's Voices in Advocacy podcast and look forward to you joining us again next week. To learn more about Voices in Advocacy, go to our website, voicesinadvocacy.com.